Japanese podcast. Today, there is neither truth nor reconciliation Hello everyone, today my guest is Tsepo uh, Madlingozi, who is a lawyer working on critical philosophy uh, of law, interested in how constitutionalism perpetuates settler colonialism, and professor at Witt University School of Law in uh, Johannesburg, where we are recording this conversation. Hello Tsepo. Hello, thank you. Thank you, <laughs> thank you so much for the time uh, you're dedicating to this conversation. I'm very excited to speak with you, and I'm, I really admire your work. Uh, and um, so I just say we're recording this conversation in Johannesburg, and which brings me to not just the city where we're in, but the country where we're in. Uh, and you call it the country with no name. Can you, uh, could you tell us about, about that? What I mean by that, I mean multiple things. And <clears throat> after that, you know, using that notion from 2014, uh, uh, you know, every time I introduce myself, where are you from? I'm from South Africa. <laughs> but what is South Africa? I mean, in the first place, I mean it at a very basic level. The name simply means a geographical indication, South of Africa. So the very basic level is a country without a name because it is no specific name. It's a country that denotes a specific geography not like Zambia, Nigeria, and so forth. In fact, it's only one of two countries in Africa without a name, the other one being the Central African Republic, right? Central West, African Republic. Western Sahara. Yes, mm -hmm. and Western Sahara, of course, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is still colonized, by the way. Yeah. So, that's the, so that's what I mean in the first place. In the second place, by that I mean that South Africa is a country without a name because it's a country that was constituted by settler colonialists. It's a very, very new country, 1910, right? Deciding to call it South Africa. And it was done that way to really denote the sense that this is not part of Africa. It's a country in Africa, but it's not part of Africa. Because, of course, settler colonialism means that the settler comes from the homeland and makes home somewhere. But in the process of the settler making home somewhere, they destroy the home of those that they colonized, right? So my PhD was all about this question, the question about what do we mean by constituting a settler colony and therefore how do you deconstitute it in constitutional terms, right? And the main point here is that <clears throat> in South Africa, settler colonialism meant the destruction of the social cultural worlds of black people, of African people, those who were here before. And on top of it was imposed this alien thing, so South Africa, the condition of its possibility is a colonization of African kingdoms, the forceful incorporation of black people into, quote-unquote, a white man's polity. So it's a country without a name because it's a country that doesn't belong to the majority of its citizens. It's a country that denies history, right? So that's why it's South Africa. It doesn't have a long-term memory, right? So it's South Africa... A country without a name, therefore, a country that perpetuates the notion of rootlessness, 
that you know black people that they are South African, they are in South Africa, but they are not rooted in South Africa. That was the aim of settling of of constituting South Africa, a country that belongs to certain people that doesn't belong to certain people. Black people are in South Africa. That's why they had to have passports in the past. That said, I'm I'm Sepo. I'm only here to work. So we could only be in South Africa as workers, as tools of racial capitalism, not as human beings who are citizens. So if you look at my birth certificate, for example, my birth certificate says my name, my surname, and then it says my homeland. And it says my homeland is a place called Kwakwa, which is in the free state. I've never been to that place. <laughs> my mother has never been to that place. My father has never been to that place. But under apartheid, all of us, because we know South Africans, we had to be assigned a homeland, a Bantustan. So that's my Bantustan. I've never been there. But the point about it is that if I got into trouble, I could be exiled there. I could be banished to that place. So the sense of rootlessness, the sense of worldlessness, not being in the world, Right? is part of settler colonialism, is part of this name. So this name performs not just physical dislocation because people, of course, were moved from place to place, evicted from the ancestral land to elsewhere to make space for white people. So the South Africa is a reminder of physical dislocation it's a reminder of cultural subjugation because, of course, South Africa sees itself in the image of Europe, right? That's why the name is in English. Doesn't matter if you translate it into Soto. Doesn't matter. It sees itself not as part of Africa, but almost at the tip next to Portugal. That is a mistake. It's here. It's a white man's polity. So cultural subjugation, but ultimately also psychic dislocation. You don't know who, who you are. So the question of who I am, who am I, what am I, is really the question that continues today because of this alien creature that we call South Africa. A camp without any name, and it continues today. Mm. So this is for the, for the where, and um, there's also the when, and we are on September 12, uh, 2019. Uh, September 12th is the anniversary of the of the execution of uh, of uh, Steve Biko, yes. uh, who's immensely immensely important in the in the constitution of black consciousness in South yes. Africa, and uh, every uh, every Fanonian should be reading Steve Biko. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. And um, and so and you you you. You kindly sent me a, a text that you wrote um, about transitional justice and, mm -hmm. and the, the total fallacy of transitional justice, and that's what we're going to talk about throughout the conversation. Mm -hmm. But in that particular text, you were you were talking about about it in um, in light of uh, because uh, black consciousness, mm -hmm. and also uh, described the way that time is approached in the sort of national uh, and nationalist and settler colonial narrative yes. in South Africa, something that, you know, I've, I haven't been here for, for many days, but as, uh, as uh, any, uh, any tourist who comes here, uh, I've, been to, uh, I've been to the Apartheid Museum, mm. I've been to the Hector Peterson uh, Memorial, mm. uh, and, um, and I was pretty stunned indeed by the sort of linearity of how information is presented yes. and the sort of multi, 
multi-perspective, like the, I mean, the Hector Peterson's memorial commemorates uh, the June, June 16th, uh, 1966 uh, yes. massacre in Soweto yes. of the students who were revolting. And I was quite impressed to see how the perspective of the police was actually presented in very seriously in this, this memorial, and how in the Apartheid Museum everything was incredibly linear in the way one would experience a museum, always to end up in this sort of rainbow, uh, rainbow nation that, triumph. <laughs> that, that, uh, that triumph over, over white supremacy, which yeah. we it doesn't take much to in you know, South Africa to realize that it's obviously uh, a, a nationalist narrative, and so um, and so I, I would I would really like to engage you with this notion of how the very linearity of time is a way, and I'm quoting you here to distance the past. And uh, yeah, could, could you could you please tell us more yes, about this? Yes, yes, yes. So I mean, I began talking about the question of settler. Colonialism, but of course we should talk about settler colonization, because of course the settler never sees himself not being in a dominant position, right? So a settler has to always entrench a notion of settler, you know, continuity, settler fugitivity that they've got a future here, even when colonialism ends but they should still dominate. So I'm very obsessed with this idea of how in South Africa post-1994, we moved from settler domination, you know, the boot on your face, to settler hegemony. Now, part of making that hegemony possible is a discourse, certain discourses. And of course, as Foucault tells us, discourse does certain, it shapes subjectivity. One of the key ones is the notion of time. So in South Africa, there's a notion that there was conquest, then there was, you know, the fight between Afrikaners and English. They came together. Then they stopped being a a part of Britain, a a a settler colonial state. It became a republic in 1963, and then the end of apartheid. You know, pa 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 pa, and then end of apartheid, rainbow nation. But the, the, the idea of teleology towards something good, right? So, so that serves to distance the past from the, from the very real fact that the past is in the present, as members of my old organization used to say. The past is in the present. You know, I was a chairperson of an organization of about 100,000 members, victims of apartheid, people who were tortured during apartheid, whose kids were disappeared, and so forth. Now, if you look at them, just if you look at them, you see the scars on their bodies. You see their poverty, their material poverty. You see their mental illness. You see how the past, in a very visceral sense, continues in the present. So the notion that there was 1994 and then there was a birth of a new nation is really to mask the idea that settler domination has really become settler hegemony, right? That's number one. Number two is really a manifestation of cultural colonial domination. Because of, of course, in African cosmology, time is never linear. Time in African cosmology is cyclical. It goes in circles. 
Time is not from A to B, never. That's, when, when, that's why when we tell our stories, I bounce back and forth. It can confuse you if you're not used to this kind of cosmology. I bounce to the future, I go back and so forth. Because for us, that's why we have notions of ancestors. It's a bad term, ancestors, because ancestors means those who are dead. But in our culture, as you know, they are here. My father who's dead is here. It's not dead, it's a living dead. So time in African society is never linear, it's cyclical. So the notion of post-apartheid, the notion of a new nation, the notions of a new constitution, a new constituent society, really serves the work of settler logic, which is to say to all of us, there's no need to fight anymore. Black people have won. It's a new society. While, as, as, you, can, as you say, you don't have to be here for too long. You see ongoing poverty. You see inequality. And now this week, as you have seen, ongoing xenophobia, which is an outcome of some of these problems. So the notion of time really serves to distance the past from the present. It serves to stop us asking very tough questions about what is today. So I've got an, another article called Social Justice in a Time of Neo-Apartheid, published in 2017. Social Justice in a Time of Neo-Apartheid. So I'm contesting notion that we are in post-apartheid. We are in neo-apartheid, N-E-O, neo-apartheid. It's neo-apartheid because you can't say it's apartheid like in the past. I've got a job at a former white university now. I direct this big center, you know, something that's not possible in the past. I live in a white suburb. I can marry whoever I want. But of course, that is a function of settler colonization where settlers are minority. They have to make sure that they assimilate some of us, black middle class. You know, so when you drive around, you see black people driving big cars, leading big institutions. But of course, that is a veneer to cover up the fact that colonization continues today. Um, great. And um, so let's, let's maybe look at, uh, at this concept of transitional justice that, uh, that might be not so well known to some, uh, some yeah. of the people who will listen to this podcast and, and much more to some others. But um, you, in a, in a lecture you gave quite, quite a while ago, <laughs> in 2010, you distinguished five different uh, points that compose transitional justice. Uh, could you maybe tell us about this and then we'll get to it, to their application, but at yeah. least from, a, from an abstract point of view to begin with? Yeah, let me start by saying, first of all, the notion of transitional justice should be known by everyone. It is a central discourse <clears throat> is a central practice that affects all of us in post-colonial countries, all of us. And all of us are engaging with it without knowing, by the way. That's number one. Number two, all of us are responding to it, to its failures, to its successes, without knowing. So what is transitional justice? Transitional justice arose in the 1980s in Latin America mostly, uh, in the context where military dictatorship were ending and people were transitioning, quote-unquote, to democracy. So a framework had to be found to say, how do you transition from 
uh, authoritarianism from military dictatorship to democracy? What framework do you put in place in the context where socialist rupture is no longer possible? So that's the first thing that we have to understand. It's a framework that is in conversation with old Marxist notion of rupture, of capture of state. And this was a liberal discourse that was introduced to say, no, there's another way to do this. You don't have to take over power. You can transition. So that's the context. After the fall of the wall in 1989, it gained more steam, right? Because then, you know, it's the end of history. It's not possible to, 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 to win the struggle through liberation. So transitional justice says, for a brief period of time, you do justice differently so that you can transition from dictatorship, from civil war, from human rights abuses to liberal democracy. Transitioning. And it's got five components to it. First component of it is usually through truth commissions. We don't want to persecute anyone. We want to be a new society. Let's all come together and, and confess our sins and say what happened, and if we do that, it won't happen again, and we can move to a good society. No persecution, but maybe, secondly, reparations for victims. So the second component of it is that you don't persecute perpetrators, but maybe you give reparations to victims. The other component of it, or the other way of doing it, is through persecution, where if one party has won, it persecutes those who have lost. It's not a fair system. It's a victor's war. We've seen it in Rwanda. We've seen it in many places where you win and you persecute mostly army commanders and so forth. So via persecutions. Memorialization where you set up monuments, museums, and so forth. And then lastly, things like uh, <clears throat> the, the reimagination of the curriculum. Of, of education so that people can learn good behaviors. So it's got a number of components, but at the center of it is the idea that you are transitioning using the law and quasi-law mechanisms into a new society. And it is, it is it's a framework that is dominated all parts of the post-colonial world after 1989. So all of us are children of transitional justice from Latin America to North Africa to Southern Africa. So all of us really are engaged with these failures. Why is failures? Because it promises to give birth to a new society. It promises to give birth to a new culture of human rights, tolerance, and so forth. But it always fails. Always, always, always fails. And I hesitate to say it fails because... It succeeds. <laughs> it succeeds. <laughs> it's designed that way, right? It's designed that way. It's designed to say, do not decolonize. Do not fundamentally restructure the economy. The obsession is on two things. Stability of the state. Make sure that the state is stable. Now, that means certain questions are pushed to the back banners because you want the state to stay as it is, Right? But number two, the notion of coming together, reconciliation. State stabilization to reconciliation. 
Now, those two discourses really in a historically colonized setting ensure that colonization continue. Let me give you an example of South Africa. The South African state is a colonial state, even today. It's a state that was set up in 1910, whose condition of possibility, as I said before, was the subjugation of African kingdoms. That state continues today. There was never state succession, there was government succession. So transitional justice says, forget about the state. The state must stay as it is. Just change the government through democracy. So questions of how do you fundamentally decolonize society that pushed aside. Questions of the economy are also pushed aside because we are concerned with, quote-unquote, liberal peace. Liberal peace. Please, let's come together and we see what we do after that. So in South Africa, the discourse of reconciliation meant that difficult questions about who owns the minerals of South Africa, who owns the land, who killed whom, who benefits from racial capitalism. Those questions were said to be questions of bad victim. You are, you are a bad person if you ask those questions. You are a spoiler of democracy. So don't ask those questions. So transitional justice, because it doesn't really go to the issues of the economy, of the land, of fundamentally changing the knowledge systems, because knowledge really is the one who, that says who's human, who's not human, which questions are legitimate, which questions are not legitimate. Transitional justice ensures that the past continues in the present. And so in the context of, um, of the country with no name, uh, uh, there's, um, there's been those truths and reconciliations that everybody re remembers or know about uh, yeah. in 1996. Um, and, and this this is uh, tragically uh, an example of, of what you're of what is mm. what you're describing, and and uh, I mean the, the 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 way you just express it in those five points also I think resonates very strongly with like some sort of uh, some sort of recipe yeah. made up in in sort of in like um, in the world of the of companies really like yeah. conflict resolution That's is right. like a, and and One, two, everybody three, four, knows four. that conflict resolution in the context of companies is for the companies to remain productive yes. it's not for it's yes. not to actually yes. 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 and one person yes. is is the person that can be the sort of uh, the referee or the, the judge and, That's and right. so it seems to be it seems to be very much the case in the in the 96 um, uh, truth and reconciliation commissions that uh, that happened and uh, I was also very interested in the way you were you were quoting Desmond Tutu saying retro retrospectively that uh, a lot of the commission had been happening within uh, a very strong Christian theology yeah. in yeah. it and much less so what uh, uh, what you describe as a Bantu theology of um, of uh, Ubuntu. Yes. Could you maybe tell us about that? Yeah, so <clears throat> the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which is one of the big things that South Africa is known for, the idea being South Africa is a model of, post, of conflict resolution because there was no prosecution, but there was no civil war. <clears throat> there was a Truth Commission where it was a table of humanity. We came together and we reconciled. It's a big lie. It's a fallacy for a number of reasons. So the TRC had a lot of 
both mistakes but also inbuilt flaws within it. First of all, the TRC, the question of timing. The TRC takes place in 1996, apartheid ended in 1994. Conflict was ongoing. So how do you expect people to come together in the context where conflict is ongoing? People are displaced. People don't trust state institutions. People are still mentally scarred. So how do you expect them to come to this thing? So too soon, but also too quick, two years. Two years, that's it. So we have a lot of cases where a lot of people were left out of the process because it was only two years. And if you ask them, why were you not part of the TLC? Some of them say, because I was not in South Africa then, or I was displaced. I was not in my town because conflict was ongoing, or I was too young, or I was mentally not okay. There was also a problem of geography. The TRC did not go to far-lying areas, you know, and farms and villages. It didn't go there. There were also administrative problems with the TRC. So you find cases where the statement taker of the TRC, the person who takes your statement, speaks one language. You as a victim, you speak another language. <laughs> you don't understand each other. So you've got cases that are dealt with where five people were involved as victims because of a bomb. But three of them are put down as victims, two of them as witnesses because of language problems. So there were a lot of mistakes. The other things that TRC statement takers were given money for, how many statements they take. So of course what happens is that people took statements very, very quickly. No psychological counseling, nothing like that. So TRC really was an idea of using victims' pain for elite reconciliation, for the politicians to reconcile, right? But not for social reconciliation. There was no social. That's why you see today incidents of racism continue in South Africa. Mistrust between races continue because there was never an opportunity to honestly, for people to say what happened. So the article that I sent you, I call it Transitional Justice as Epistemicide. Epistemicide meaning the killing of indigenous knowledge, the killing of other people's way of understanding the world. And TRC was a classic case. TRC continued a conquest of knowledge. One, as you saw, it was heavily influenced by Christianity. Desmond Tutu himself is a bishop, the deputy chairperson is a priest, and seven other commissioners were active Christians. So a very, not only religious, but Western religion at its heart. The notion of to forgiveness. Mm. Forgiveness in our culture is different. In our culture, if you forgive, if you ask for forgiveness, you must give me something, a cow, to show that you are really sorry. But in Christianity, I slapped your cheek, you show me the other cheek to slap you again. So not only did you not have material uh, it did not make a difference materially in terms of reparations, in terms of redress, in terms of restitution, but it also meant the continuation of conquest of the mind, of being in the world, right? Seeing the world like a Christian. But also, so it was Christian theology on the one hand, on the other hand, Western 
legal discourse. TLCs, like all over the world, they are based on Western legal culture. If you say something happened to you, you must give me witnesses, you must tell me where it happened, you must give statements in a certain way. So Western legal discourse was also central to the TRC, right? So Western legal discourse, Christian theology, ensured that the demolition, the conquest of African people continued. So TRC really was not just a failure of not helping us come with a new society, it was also an instrument that continues colonization of the mind, of the minerals, and everything. Yeah, and perhaps we'll go back to Ubuntu later, actually, for the, the end of the conversation, which will be great. Uh, but also something I find particularly striking in the way uh, the TRC seems to have been happening is that they seem to presume that what, what needed to be expressed was something that is incredibly coming from, from the Western world as well, which is the idea of human rights violation, yeah. meaning events that are sort of identifiable and, and that, can, that can be judged as being a human rights violation, yeah. when actually the entire structure, the yeah. entire system, was in itself the absolute domination uh, of, of white supremacy over, uh, over uh, people, uh, indigenous people. Uh, uh, and and um, and other other people would not would not fit within this uh, white supremacist uh, mm. uh, uh, paradigm. Uh, but so so that's 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 really that's quite incredible to to for 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 those uh, about this because then it also I mean you've been using the word victim since yeah. the beginning. I mean it produces victim because yeah. victims are victims of one one event. They're not. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, we just talk about colonized people quite yes. simply. Yes, yes, and, yes, yes, yes. And some things that your some things that you work really really shows with great uh, great um, detail in great details is also how there is a performative dimension of the victims uh, or performance at yes. the very least. Yes, yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. In so far, and and obviously you already you already talked about the good victims and the bad victims, but yes. let's talk about the good victims. Uh, uh, there is a sort of um, a song of the victim that uh, that fits within this whole uh, this whole uh, system, and in which the story and I put quotation mark and I think it's important also to di to distinguish the notion of story and the notion of narrative. Yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. But so the yeah. story yeah. of the victim becomes yeah. a highly valuable commodity for everybody except the vic the, the person who is yes. called the victim. Can yes. you can you tell us more about this? Yeah. Let Let's go back to yeah. the question of human rights discourse. Sure. So the TRC is a clear indication that in a settler colonial context, human rights discourse does not work. <laughs> for many reasons that we can talk about later on. But for example, in the case of the TRC, you had to come as an individual victim and say, that perpetrator shot my father, or that perpetrator tortured me individual to individual. So the structure, the system, was not on trial. Apartheid, as an evil system, was never in question. <laughs> it was as if it was okay, but people misbehaved and tortured people. But actually, everything was okay. 
And of course, that's a logic of settler colonization. So the Africa, the state is okay, is legitimate. Mm -hmm. But maybe some people misbehaved and they must be sent to prison or whatever. And there must be democracy, not decolonization, not de-apartization. We didn't have that. So let me give you an example. So for example, my father was a mine worker. He worked in the mine, like many black fathers. We never saw him. So he would come home every four months, every five months. So all of us grew up without our fathers, which meant that all of us grew up without knowing how to become a father, how to become a man. But it also meant the destruction of a lot of families and therefore the destruction of a lot of black societies. So the migrant labor system was at the heart of apartheid, right? Destroying black families, destroying, you know, causing so much trauma to everyone. That question was not before the TRC. The question of migrant labor system was not before the TRC. Number three, beneficiaries of apartheid were not part of the TRC. In every oppressive system, as you know, there are always beneficiaries. So ordinary white people who do not kill, but who benefited from apartheid, do not have to come to the TRC. So beneficiaries were excluded from the TRC. But you are also quite right about the notion of victim. That's why I came up with this notion of good victim, bad victim, a 2016 paper of mine. You expected to perform in a certain way come there, cry, demand justice, and then accept an apology, and then go home. So you had to perform that. If you perform that, you show that you are a good new South African. You show that you are part of building a new society. If you don't, like some of us or my uh, members of my organization, you are a bad victim. You, are, you don't want democracy, you know? So you are put in a certain category, you are said to be part of the past because you don't want to move on. A good victim is a victim who accepts that apartheid is over, accepts apology, but moves on without any material changes in their whole life. <coughs> so the question of individual victims, the structure not on trial, was a very, very big, 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 big problem uh, with, with, with the TRC. Second question again. That was the second question about yes. the, the, sto the story as a commodity. That's right. So I've got another article, which is, by the way, my most cited article ever, ever. Yeah. 2010. It's called uh, Transitional Justice Entrepreneurs. You know, entrepreneurs. So Transitional Justice produces people who make money out of this. They write books. They do the manuals of, you know, how to export post-conflict resolutions everywhere. They become commissioners, they become professors, but then others are victims. Victims cannot speak unless they're spoken on behalf of, you know? So, so the victim cannot speak. They can only be spoken on behalf of. So it really pushes this idea that they're victims and they are saviors. And in the context of South Africa, in the context of South Africa, of settler colonization, the saviors were white people. So people who benefit from apartheid benefit again by telling victim stories, by becoming the saviors, by establishing organizations, you know, organizations of, of civil society, and therefore benefiting 
once again. So a very missionary concept of saving others without looking at yourself. What about yourself? Have you changed? You know? So this question of victims, perpetrators, continued over and over again. And it's something that Steve Biko, someone to refer to, warned us against. He said, if you integrate South Africa, meaning you bring black people and white people together, without decolonizing, you are going to perpetually forever have people who are masters and servants. That continues today. And I'm saying I blame transitional justice because it produced the notion that some people did not have any other political subjectivity. They were just victims. So even though you were a politician, you were an activist, but the TRC in a very, uh, in a very biopolitical way produce you only as a victim, and that's what you know. So it also reduced or moved us away from the idea of building social movements that can really fight neo-apartheid, continuing apartheid, because we're just victims, individual victims. So that was the problem with the TRC. Mm. Yeah. Well, so as a last as a last chapter of this conversation, I think I'd li I'd like to talk about decolonization proper, uh, or at least or at least uh, visions visions of it and what it uh, what it could be. And I, I think listening listening to you uh, throughout this conversation, I, I it makes me it made me think of something that I, I hope is relevant, which is the way. Um, uh, concept like the the relation of Edouard Glissant of Caribbean philosophy. Okay, Edouard Glissant has been yeah. completely yeah. Uh, taken by and completely yeah. whitewashed by so many people yeah. as a relation being this sort of like nice little yeah. Yeah. we're in relation, we're we're happy, we're rainbow like nation. Rainbow nation. Rainbow nation. Uh, when actually what Glissant wrote is the relation is mm. also the unerasable uh, nature of the relation between the master and the slave and the and the colonizer and the colonized yeah. meaning that they they you can you cannot you cannot erase this this relation in any possible way in all its violence you can you can build on it because i mean Lisson remains a very sort of positive thinker but yeah. it cannot it can never ever be uh it cannot i mean this the violence of the relation itself can never ever be erased so i'm thinking uh based on that as a what, what what is true, not no longer transition if ju trans transitional justice, but reparative justice. Yes, uh, that that's a concept that we we hear a lot in the abolitionist uh, yes, circles. Yes, 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 yes. So yes. and so, what what is what is this Ubuntu uh, that you can maybe tell us, yes. tell us more about? So Ubuntu is a central philosophy of African people. The whole continent, by the way, not just in South Africa. Different names, but is the same thing, Ubuntu or Botu in South Africa. And it's a living ethical prescription that says you are not a human being. You are always becoming a human being. So that's the first part. No one is ever a person. Personhood is being, becoming. You are always becoming a person. And you are only a person if you do humane acts to other people. You stop being a person if you are evil to other people, if you hoard resources, if you steal from other people. So the first 
I do of relation. You are never an island by yourself. You are always with other people. Not just people and also non-human beings, no animals and so forth. And cosmological beings, you know, people, ancestors and so forth. But it demands two things. One, truth. Two, justice. Otherwise, this relation is false. And it does not, it's not a relation. Truth and justice. In the context of South Africa, in a very weird way, during the TRC, Ubuntu was assimilated into a Christian theology. We were told as black people, you are people of Ubuntu, therefore you, can, you must forgive. Because Ubuntu says, I am because you are, because you are, therefore I am. Therefore just hug and forget. So it was really, it was very scary. But, but, but that's what colonization does. It cannibalizes your most intimate discourse and uses them against you. So Ubuntu in South Africa was a wishy-washy thing where you forgive and you move on. No truth. The truth of what exactly happened in South Africa. What exactly happened? Who did what to whom? Number two, justice. What would it take for us to build a humane society? That was really pushed to the back door, right? So the notion of, notions of truth, justice, were absent from this very metaphorical idea of Ubuntu, that it became meaningless. You know, someone gives an example of a bicycle. You steal my bicycle, you come back after four years and you say, I'm sorry, I stole your bicycle. Then I say, okay, I forgive you. We shake hands and then you go. But the bicycle is still with you. How are we going to establish a relation then? Or what Edward Gisal talks about, a poetics of relation. How is that possible? So Ubuntu really is very, it's not easy because he says every time we must live according to the truth and according to justice. What is the truth of South Africa today? Is the truth of ongoing conquest. It's the truth of black middle class like myself being assimilated into the white world while you still have apartheid, the black world, and the white world continues. And that continues as they are, with black people as the buffer in between, the black middle class. So no truth about an analysis of what's going on. No justice of the triple R's, reparation, restoration of stolen land, restoration of kingdoms that were subjugated, restitution of what was taken from people economically, you know, uh, through cheap black labor. Restitution because of ongoing privilege today. So the notion of Ubuntu was really, really abused. But Ubuntu is the vehicle towards true decolonization. By true decolonization, I mean a decolonization that is about going forward with truth, with justice. So on the one hand, <coughs> Ubuntu is abused from two different circles. The first circle is white liberals who say Ubuntu means moving on. The second one is from some of the decolonial people who for them decolonization means okay, fighting the white system, fighting ongoing colonization, and then black people at the center of the world. 
That's not what Ubuntu says. Ubuntu says we are all human beings. But how do we build a human society? So Ubuntu is really the vehicle towards interculturality, interlegality, is a route towards post-xenophobia, post-homophobia, post all of these things because it really is about people coming together based on truth, based on justice. Great. Uh, any any last word on maybe uh, the the current situation in uh, in South Africa or uh, yeah? yeah. <coughs> I mean, the current situation has to do with what we started with. So we see incidents of Afrophobia, the killing of black people by other black people, not the killing of foreigners because people are not killing Italians or you know uh, people from France and so forth because they're white. They're killing those who look like them. Something that Steve Biko, who died today, 42 years ago, spoke about internalized racism, internalized hate. So you hate someone because you cannot hate what is bigger than you, racial capitalism. So the work of Steve Biko really remains quite central because Steve Biko demanded that we look at ourselves very critically not only at the white man who's oppressing me, but also at myself. What have I internalized from the master? Okay, you can get rid of the master, but you can continue the master's ways, right? Because you have not disalienated, decolonized your mind. So the instance of xenophobia are really the failure of taking black consciousness seriously. They are a failure to take Ubuntu seriously. How can you claim to be a person of Ubuntu, but you kill someone because they are from a different place? But it also speaks to what we began with, South Africa. What is this camp that says this one belongs, this one doesn't belong? Who established this? It was established in 1910 by colonialists. Now, you say you want to continue that. I mean, that is so silly. It is auto-colonization. You are continuing to colonize yourself. So it's really a failure to take seriously the question of ongoing conquest, the question of problematizing South Africa. What is South Africa? Not only the name, but its geography. What is this border? Is, do we need these borders? Do we, who said... This is the camp that if you belong here, you are a native, and that's it. It's really a failure also of those of us who do decolonial discourse. Because some of us who are doing decolonial discourse, we are still married to the idea of nativism. I am a native, therefore I deserve freedom. Or I'm a native, therefore I deserve the land. But the question was, who's native? and who's not native, does not end with the white man and the black man. It continues, and it will continue to such an extent that it moves from your conversation with a settler. By the way, someone is only a native because of a settler, but now you are continuing that kind of narrative, I'm a native, and then chasing away those who are not natives. It's a failure of Ubuntu, taking Ubuntu seriously. It's a failure of learning from Steve Bigo. It is a failure of decolonization as Ubuntu. 
Well, Tsepo, thank you so much for taking thank the you, time today you. to talk to me about all this. And I'm, I'm very happy that we relaunched uh, the podcast with uh, such an incredibly rich conversation. Thank you. Thank you. So we, I had sinuses today because of the allergies. <laughs> <laughs>